Welcome to part two of Explain Me. My name is Patty Johnson. And I'm William Powhead. On the podcast today, we talk about the work of Trevor Paglin, Ellie Gah, and Omer Fast. But first, let's do a few quick news hits. There's now a Jeff Koons filter on Snapchat that allows users to post his balloon dogs places. I personally think this is a really dumb artwork, but beyond that, I wonder what Snapchat gets out of any of this. It's not like Blue and Dogs are going to increase their user engagement more than filters of, say, unicorns puking. So what are they up to? I, I don't quite know, but I would ask the same question of why Jay-Z is commissioned a giant 50-foot balloon dog to be staged uh, during his next concert tour. So what does Snapchat want out of Jeff Koons, and what does Jay-Z want out of them? So it must be some connection to the art world. I feel like Jay-Z has more re- reason to put a balloon dog on stage. At least it's a prop, like, and it's his thing. I really don't see like millions of people getting that excited about being able to put a sticker on the park they're visiting. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I think my Twitter response too is that they're just constructing my version of hell, that this is my idea of a, a really bad idea. It is a really bad idea. Moving right along <laughs> to other bad ideas, Marina Abramovic is making macarons that taste like her. Why? Uh, I don't know. That question may have been answered in the article where I saw this, but I didn't click through to find out. And that's because I'm a great journalist. <laughs> right. Well, I, you know, my, my thought about that was that, you know, like us, she has a little bit more time on her hands now that she's abandoned her plans to uh, open the Marina Abramovich Institute in Hudson, which was going to be like a $35 million REM cool house designed space. So that's not happening. I guess the Institute will carry on in a more immaterial form. But so, you know, now she can bake all the cookies she wants that taste like her. I really don't want to taste those cookies. That just sounds really yucky to me. Yeah, I don't want to. Just going to put that out there. Yeah, I don't want to eat Marina Abramovich's body. Yeah. Anyway, Vito Schnabel, he's been arrested for selling shrooms at Burning Man. Uh, The best headline goes to Benjamin Sutton, that hyperallergic New York art dealer, allegedly tested primary market for shrooms at Burning Man. I just love Ben Sutton for that so much. I would love to see the rejected headlines uh, that they probably came up with. But, um, you know, I think it's a pretty powerful statement about the state of Burning Man, which, I mean, personally, I kind of hope to never get trapped there or go there. (laughs) Just seems kind of like garbage all around. Agreed. (laughs) Sorry. So the first show we're going to talk about is Trevor Paglin, A Study of Invisible Images is the name of the show, and it's at Metro Pictures. The show runs through October 21st. Just sort of generally what it looks like, there's a number of large-scale images in the front room, a large portrait that's kind of blurry, a series of 70,000 numbers, one through seven repeated. The artist, Hedo Styro. Hedo Styro hundreds of images of her face in various contorted poses, a video room, and uh, finally a gallery of composite images of what a computer sees when identifying things like Mary Shelley Frankenstein, octopuses, American predators, other animals, 
So that's what we've got to start with. Uh, should I just start with my ideas about? Yeah, absolutely. Show? And I think this was a show that I had seen on my last uh, gallery walk through Chelsea. And I felt I didn't feel it wasn't one that I would recommend, nor did I have any major criticisms of the show. And in fact, I didn't spend all that much time with it. So I definitely want to hear more from you about the show. Well, so I thought that the first room was slightly problematic in that the one of the first images you see is the thousands of images of Heido Sterl, the conceptual artist. And she is sort of an interesting figure in and of herself um, and enjoying quite a bit of popularity right now. But the, the actual artwork is just images of her and then what a computer sees, which is, in this case, it's trying to evaluate what are her ages, what her emotional state is, what her... Uh, approximate uh, weight might be or something like that. I mean, I think I just made that last one up. But you get the picture. So that's this is sort of, it's getting at the very kind of basics of that particular show. And the show goes much deeper than that. But the initial entry point, which I think is maybe meant to kind of give you a framework within which to look at some of the other more complicated imagery, is so kind of boring and flat that it doesn't really do that much. And the same thing happens with another image in that same gallery, which is just a series of uh, one through seven repeated 70,000 times, which Trevor Paglin in his uh, artist statement says, is it like a Rosetta Stone? I actually thought the show was really successful and I had a lot of things to, to say about it. There's a portrait in the front room. It's called Fanon. Um, it is creepy as fuck. It sort of appears 3D. It's kind of blurry. The man... Um, looks like maybe he's a person of color but i can't really tell it's also black black and white and it tends to kind of undulate in this very unsettling way when you read the description you learn that to make it the computer takes hundreds of images of fanon aligns them so their eyes and mouths are in the same place and then averages them and then does the same with other face images that it has in its database. So this is an AI database. So it's just random people and it averages them. And then it subtracts the overall image of all the other faces from the face of Fanon. So the face print that you're seeing is essentially something that showcases what makes Fanon's face distinct from all other faces mm. and that's why it looks so creepy and when you understand that there's like this kind of moment of revelation and i don't i think i don't love extra textual material sometimes whether you kind of need to know what the the artist is doing to understand what you're looking at in the first place but i thought that this had an element of like the uncanny that even without knowing that, you could really appreciate the photograph. And I also thought, after I started thinking about this particular image, it seemed kind of interesting to me that this is kind of a tech show, and it's being introduced at the same time, around the same time, as the Apple iPhone, which now has Face ID. So it actually seemed time with the, timed with the technology world, which I thought was just sort of interesting from a, uh, a, just from a marketing standpoint. Yeah, and I would agree. And I mean, I assume going into Trevor's show and knowing a bit about his previous bodies of work that what I'm seeing, there's 
the, the image itself is constructed, the, I guess the formal attributes of the image are created by the technology or, you know, like when he was taking pictures of uh, black sites or sites that are sort of um, not supposed to be visible, they are blurry because he's shooting through so much atmosphere that you get this kind of beautiful effect from the fact that he's looking through miles of air and space. And that yields something that is sort of pretty. But when you know the sort of why, everything kind of switches. And so there is a real perceptual shift, I think, with Paglin's work between that kind of extra textural information, the things outside of it, and what you, you kind of first apprehend in the gallery. It's true. And I think in this case, the additional material was sometimes not helpful. So he talks about his work, like the title of the show is a study of invisible images. And I think that that is in some ways off because if you use Fanon as a, like kind of a starting point, really what he's interested is in is like what aesthetic qualities make an iconic image, something that, you, that makes it completely distinct from everything else. I think that what a computer sees in this case is quite different than what we see, but the, the algorithms that he's developing are things that we already just use unconsciously anyway. So I just thought that the whole piece was really interesting. Yeah, and I mean, my take on the show is I kind of walked through the first half of it and I stopped in front of the Hedo images, the many faces of Hedo. And it felt like there was a kind of little bit of inside baseball with that. Like if you know who she is, you know that she's, if you know her work, it kind of makes sense that she would be the subject. You know, she has a video called How to Disappear. And to be seen so publicly by an audience and then also the machine, it just seemed kind of like a, a, an easy joke. And so I yeah. kind of passed through that. I skipped the video. I was trying to see 30 shows or something, so I wasn't going to stay for the video piece. And I walked through the back, and I they were very eerie, uh, arresting images, I call them. I, I felt like they were like artificial intelligence Bacons, you know, like Francis Bacon exploring the kind of unconscious uh, imaging of, of AIs sort of in conversation with each other. But they were incredibly painterly. They were also eerie as fuck. You know, I felt like it was in some ways, I think the three shows that we're going to talk about today, I could see them all as horror films. There's a kind of horror <laughs> film very of, of the imagery that's created, kind of like creating monstrosities out of the potential for monstrosity within AI. Because I can't separate the facial recognition software from its use to sort and separate people into categories like white and other or terrorist category, right? right? And how they're the product of still human agency. But just to add to that, of course, it didn't get to that um, level, but we did see like these different categories. For lack of a better word, there's like bad guy territory, <laughs> like, and that's where problematic things tend to land. Absolutely, so. and you know, the other show that we're going to talk about today, there's a scene in one of the the artist's films where a Nazi is talking about the value of this protagonist of the film, um, his work is in its passionless gaze, its sort of objectivity, its scientific kind of inquiry. And, you know, I think Trevor's sort of looking at that supposed um, objectivity of like AI intelligence or machine vision, you know, being able to kind of sort and classify people, you know, 
I don't see it as being objective or some other thing. I still see it as really being a product of what people are making for specific purposes. And that is, you know, rooted in the kind of war on terror and military applications. So I do find something very un- horrific about Trevor's work that's not just in the imagery, but also in what it's sort of trying to make visible about this kind of security terror state apparatus. To talk about the video room for a little bit, because I did um, spend a little bit of time there. The Basically, the video was showing, showing training libraries that teach a computer how to see and then what the computer sees. Like visually, I could sort of see why somebody might just pass through that room. It's not very exciting. The only thing that I thought was kind of worth mentioning is that when I was there, like all of the videos he'd chosen were workout videos, <laughs> which I thought was rather funny. <laughs> but like what the computer sees is always just like some sort of fuzzy version of some yoga pose or something like it's very basic and is this to teach machines how to recognize different types of movements like you know how a a connect microsoft connect reads somebody's body when they're playing a video game or that's what i understood it to be i mean i yeah and you know it's not um we should mention this you know that uh trevor it was just announced that he was the recipient of a macarthur uh foundation grant which is also known as the genius award so he's now half a million dollars richer and uh he's a genius so i mean i think there is a bit of trepidation like you know his work is very complicated and you know he had an mit professor uh, delivering a lecture about the work so there is um there's a kind of high bar potentially to the work in terms of understanding all of its dimensions, I suppose. Yeah, although I will say that there's plenty of, I'll find somebody from MIT in the tech art world to explain this stuff, and they don't necessarily know any better than anybody else. And it's ends up not being that interesting. I think that Trevor just does a really good job with the people he chooses to collaborate with. So. Yeah, and it, it should, you know, I, I wish I had uh, read the press release earlier that, you know, he had offered to public uh, walkthroughs of the show to kind of talk through it, which usually I'm not uh, the first artist to sign up for hearing another artist talk about their work, but I would have gone to one of those. Right, because Trevor Paglin, like part of his artwork, I think is talking about it. And he's like just extremely fluent, like really has the ability he is like a little bit like a startup guy except without all this sleazy uh, like sales pitchy stuff in the sense that like he breaks everything down to like super simple terms and they're really easy to understand and for that reason i always found that his artist statements sort of reminded me a lot of the work and statements of david rokeby who was i think had his greatest moment of uh, fame in the 1989 to like mid 90s and he was a interactive artist who also designed his own software so like i think like the the brains required to make that kind of work very often have a a kind of language that's identifiable but sometimes i think rubs a certain art people the wrong way well speaking of rubbing uh certain art people the wrong way you know jerry saltz uh wrote a pretty harsh critique of trevor's show that i think it's worth just kind of reading through very quickly it's only three sentences they have to be a little bit long but there's a lot in here that some of it's worth rebutting um so trevor paglin a study of invisible images trevor paglin is a darling of brainy curators on the institutional dole 
And all of those who tell themselves that mediums like painting are ossifying and that digital algorithmic art or something will be the future. At Metro Pictures, his show consists of a whole bunch of overproduced, shiny, blurred images of faces, all over fields of fuzzy color in the shapes of clouds or deserts or interiors, videos flashing idiotic pictures, mandatory, and hundreds of little pics of excellent artist Tito Styral making faces, presumably for street cred, or to show that he at least knows the real deal when he sees it and wants a piece of it. We're seeing way too much of this kind of thing. Call it conceptual zombie formalism these days. And to offset the fact that the work is all 100% generic, each work formally comes with a silly paragraph or two of smarty pants jargon to explain what these images are supposed to be and certainly aren't, which allow us to see just how intimidated much of the art world must be of the things more individualistic, risky, maybe physical, original, and not primarily textual and that exist only in the mind of the artist. The verbose wall labels and those who tell themselves that art without a message, quote, message, is bad art, when all art has a message, uh, even as in Peglin's case, that it is unoriginal and affected. So, uh, you know, I just thought it was worth kind of bringing up this really harsh review that Jerry lays on Trevor because his work requires some interpretation, um, his work might ask you to read a little bit, something about it, and that basically it's not painting. It's, it's not made by uh, an individual artist whose genius is contained inside their head. And, you know, his work is deeply connected to a lot of different things going on in the world, whether it's terrorism, uh, kind of critiquing the surveillance state working with Laura Poitras on Citizen Nine as the cinematographer, and the fact that he was an artist in residence at Stanford University, working with AI researchers and, you know, scientists. And Jerry just either ignorant of this, doesn't care, or all he wants are small little paintings. I think there are a number of statements in that review. I guess there are only three sentences, but they seem to contain many more statements than the sentences would suggest. But I think there are many statements in there that are either misleading or incorrect. So I definitely take issue with the idea that the statements are filled with jargon. There just, there simply is none in these statements. And that's why they're so powerful. I mean, the first line from this uh, statement one of the most common applications of artificial intelligence is to do automatic object recognition and image captioning. Yeah, that's not jargon. I mean, no. and that's also basic if you're familiar with anything that computers are doing these days. You know, you, you, you can recognize that. That's not specialist language. Well, I mean, I actually think if you were going to pick apart some of the problems that I think like situating this work has in the art world, it's that there's not enough art jargon like he doesn't use the word blurring every other line like there's not a lot of attempt to kind of superfluously attempt to attach it to art history when it doesn't need to to be that way i mean i do i I thought it was funny that you know the images in the back where he's having ai's generate images based on like mary shelley's frankenstein that there's kind of like the dreams of monsters or something but i felt like there were strong art historical connections to lots of different moments in painting that you know jerry also just sort of like ignores and doesn't even want to talk about i mean i absolutely agree that that's the case that there's a lot of references references to painting there but they're not there in the statement and they're also they're made by the computer itself it's not like 
Trevor Peglin is in there manipulating the images to make them look more like art. It's actually how the the computer sees the image. That is, it is sort of wonderful, but it's also like, you know, one of my basic operating definitions of art is that it's just the representation of a perspective and that can often just be a set of selections. And so Peglin initiates the process with a set of choices and then the AIs sort of do the work, you know, as these inhuman assistants (laughs) doing a kind of creative labor and dreaming up these kind of really beautiful images that are also kind of horrific. And then Trevor selects those, I imagine, from I don't know how many more there are in the world. Yeah, but but I mean, I feel like that gets into a kind of art that's a lot less interesting. Like there was a big conversation about this online in 2010 that was very popular at the time called XYZ art. And that was you start with a formula, like with a, a choice. It could be like weather data, but it de- like it doesn't matter what it is. You stick it through a process and then at the other end, it doesn't really matter what is at the end. Either you choose it or you don't, but like the process is the thing that's supposed to transform it. And you end up with kind of just a, a really predictable formula. Yeah, and you know, I experienced that I think probably in 2010 visiting the transmedia department at Syracuse University and sitting with an MFA student who had taken um, Star Wars footage and ran it through facial recognition software to see what it would flag or choose. So there were a lot of images, high contrast images, weird moments, and you're right. I mean, it followed that exact thing. Take Star Wars, put it through a process, output, you get something, and I really just want to have the conversation about why that choice, what were the parameters for the AI, what's it looking for, and is is that revealed in some way in the output? And is there a political dimension to that? And the student was either wholly uninterested or didn't care about right. that. Where I think Trevor's work very much is rooted in that. Um, yeah, you know, I didn't get that sense walking through Trevor's show, though, that I felt like I was looking at XYZ art. No, well, I didn't either. I guess I just felt like I I didn't think that his work really fell into that category, even though it sort of walks beside it. Yeah, and you know, uh, before I come to Trevor's defense to maybe over-enthusiastically or something, I just, I found Jerry's review like the worst kind of criticism that you go in, dislike, like with a bone to pick about a particular artist and... Um, it just seems a little bit lazy, and he, he just has a kind of problem with the artist himself and and just goes over the top, I think, with this kind of review. You know, it's funny because I wasn't sure that it was so specific to Trevor Paglin because, like, I mean, he did see the show, that, but, like, he really didn't talk about it that much. It seemed like he had a bigger bone to pick with a particular kind of conceptualism that didn't give much return for all this like thinky bullshit that goes into it, which I think is a legitimate complaint, but he attached it to the wrong artist. I I would agree. And I think Trevor's working at a lot of different levels. Some of his writing is the best that I've read by an artist on the surveillance state, you know, turnkey tyranny that was published on creative time reports is brilliant. You know, I think his work has changed and he's taken risks and he works inside the art world and outside the art world. Um, he works across disciplines. So I do think he's really the wrong artist to kind of like 
pick this particular battle with, and then contrasting him, you know, somehow setting up a, a, an oppositional relationship with Hito Styrel, who clearly they both live in Berlin. They're friends, probably collaborators. They've they share a lot of similar concerns in their work, and to sort of set them up as you know, like they're in competition, just seems silly and really juvenile. Yeah, I mean that's absolutely the kind of perspective that you bring to this that I would never pick up on my own. <laughs> And, you know, Jerry is right. Hito's a fantastic artist. She had a wonderful kind of like mini retrospective at Artist Space where they showed, you know, both venues and amazing work. But, you know, to set up this kind of like false binary, like she's a true real deal artist that he wants to get a piece of. Come on. I mean, that language is kind of just misogynistic and kind of gross on its face, you know. And to say that he's a darling of brainy curators, right? Just like that they're all the problem you know so it's just i mean this 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 one paragraph is loaded with so much like questionable problematic language well, that, what did he call the uh, institutions like oh, the institutional dole that yeah the there, institutional dole that yeah. seems kind of silly too like really unfair to institutions <laughs> <laughs> they're like these like giant corporations that are you know just feeding this bad art for me what this brings up is two things one Three sentence reviews are a terrible idea because this is clearly a case where somebody had more to say than they could in three sentences. And what came out was probably more harmful than it was useful to the artist and for anybody who wanted to learn something about Trevor Paglin. And now Trevor Paglin has, you know, he's won the MacArthur and Jerry Salt is on Twitter. But just to. Mm -hmm read the uh the full tweet so that we get that uh it's fake news begets fake art fake artist trevor paglin got a macarthur genius grant today ha the idiocy of good little humanist news and then there's the uh rhino pooping it it, it, it bothered me as well and then once you mentioned and sent that image of like the what is it a hippo or rhinoceros like diarrheaing <laughs> projectile uh, diarrhea all over the place um, all I, I went back and was reading you know his three sentence review again but I could only hear like Donald Trump reading it so once he invoked fake news I'm like god this is like this kind of horrible parallel between Jerry's kind of like aggressive attitude towards the show and Trump and uh, and he's been such a harsh critic of Trump that it just it put me in like a tailspin of like oh my god this is all awful and you know to be fair like in to be transparent, you know, Jerry and I bicker and fight. Like, you know, he called me a hall monitor because I was criticizing his um, calling another older artist that is in my peer group a young artist, like just kind of always keeping it about youth and coolness. And, that, you know, I'm like, is Jerry just a vampire? Is he just out there kind of feeding on the energy of the art world and young people? That's a totally separate question. But so, so I'm blocked. I can't necessarily communicate with Jerry anymore through social media and I don't see what he's posting all the time usually it has to rise to some level like this where it's uh I, I can actually view it and the, the other side of it though is you know Jerry's a nice guy if I see him in a gallery I'll probably say hello in person he can be very pleasant and super energetic and it's not like I have any personal bone to pick with him as a human being I think just as a critic in this case right now I there's a lot of issues with his review and singling out Trevor Paglin for this kind of criticism and tagging him as the conceptual uh, zombie formalist par excellence. Right. And I mean, I think I have sort of similar history of like bickering with Jerry Saltz and like recently, you know, having a conversation where he's very supportive of 
my work as a critic. And so it was a conversation I really needed. But at the same time, you know, we do have this back and forth where the job of critics is to disagree and agree publicly. I mean, these things do get a little messy. I think Jerry hates any artist that professes any kind of moral position, in part because he's he has to see the art world as being an absolutely free sphere for uh, artistic expression, individual artistic expression, and that has to be preserved at all costs. So these kind of politics that Trevor's work is connected to, his political positions, suddenly just get lumped into a kind of moralistic tone that Jerry doesn't like. So he can call me a hall monitor, but he's like the ultimate hall monitor of any kind of, um, and I hate to say it, like the intrusion of the world into the sphere of arts. Right. So, you know, he's, he's hard on Peglin because I think Peglin has a kind of political position that maybe threatens Jerry, threatens his kind of freedom. I would say that that's, um, that argument makes sense as you've argued it, but based on the review, I don't think there's enough to support that position. I'm going on a long, I, you know, this is the artist side, you know, uh, not the critic where I'm, I'm coming to defense of a fellow artist whose work I, I do respect and admire and, uh, can be sort of formally talked about in ways that devalue its content and that other times, you know, the, the formal aspects of the work are seen as just superfluous or something, you know, or not even discussed. Um, let's yeah. move, so move let's, along. Let's, let's talk about... <laughs> I think we definitely hit a dead end there. Yeah, let's let's talk about a, a, a different kind of uh, horror film. I was really blown away by uh, Ellie Gaw's show, uh, which is called Strophy, comma, A Turning. And it's at Bureau Gallery in the Lower East Side. And full disclosure, I, I attended graduate school around the same time as Ellie. I'm not even sure if we were in the program at the same time. But she is a fellow Hunter alum. And uh, she has a, a two-channel video installation that's presented on two uh, facing screens uh, in the main space of Bureau. And it's, it's a lovely 37-minute video that tells, in, in, a, in a classically sort of Ellie way, it tells the story of her interaction with both the kind of the ocean as a subject. And it's, it's not an easy show to summarize, but let's just say that on one screen, one part of the narrative is exploring like the history of messages in a bottle. And she's sort of following and investigating this history and speaking to people that collect these messages, uh, people that kind of deal in the, the artifacts. And on the other screen, another part of the narrative is sort of meditation on like the Syrian refugee crisis where she worked as a, a volunteer with people that were helping pull Syrian refugees off the boats and get them ashore. And it it's, has m images that are uh, kind of indelible, like, you know, a sort of three to four minute just slow take of piles of life preservers that really just burns into the mind. And she's able to kind of like turn the viewer sitting in between these two screens sort of back and forth in this kind of in-between space of the kind of almost hopeless moment of when somebody has to like what brings somebody to throw a message in a bottle into the ocean and she interviews uh, somebody whose name I forget but you know he seems to be a kind of collector of some sort and he sort of isolates the moment for an adult to throw a message in the bottle is when they've realized that death is at hand like they have like they've been told they have two months to live and they stop looking to the heavens to the archangel michael or something but they start looking at the sea the world and it's this really kind of bleak moment and it just stops where this this guy finishes his kind of thought and then it cuts to another screen and which so was beautiful by the way because like he 
he stops his thought and then there's like maybe five seconds of just lingering on him being quiet yeah and like that awkward finish is really yeah and, and that, powerful that going back and forth between the syrian refugee crisis which trying to handle that as political subject matter is difficult because it's a humanitarian crisis and to make it art you know you you really i think ellie was very brave in trying to like show this in an art context and also show how she was involved materially as somebody volunteering and helping. And there's one moment where she's, it's a view of where the lookouts look for boats and she's just kind of narrating over the video and she's talking about how grateful the families were getting off the boats and um, talking about the fact there were so many babies. And so once she starts talking about these babies and how disoriented they are from having slept on these boats, it just made me cry. You know, it was one of those moments where I'd rarely get that emotional around art and just sort of crying in the gallery quietly, totally affected by this work. And it just it made me want to go back and watch it again um, because it is so complex as a piece of work, the way she narrates it, the way she links together her kind of personal experience with all of these different histories and these kind of long stories that come right into the immediate present that I think somebody might walk into that show and look at two channel video and maybe be off put. There was literally one guy who kind of walked in, spun on his heel and walked out. And I thought he just missed out on something really incredible. And the, you know, the, the, the Syrian humanitarian crisis, that's the horror of the kind of reality in that. And then yet, you know, she's still trying to address it, trying to make work about it. And it was incredibly powerful. So. I am both a fan of Eliga, and I think this is an incredibly strong piece. Um, and so it's one that I would highly recommend people take the time to go sit down and see. I think I got like probably a little less out of it than you did. Although that I don't think that that's necessarily for any good reason. I saw it on, op on the opening day, so I saw maybe 15 minutes and it was near the end. And so I, I went back to it today and I watched the full thing and it's a very strange experience watching that with other people because of course like a class had walked in in the middle and there was this really a strange experience to be watching the movie and like have all these feelings of kind of guilt watching it because I, I connected with it but there were only certain moments that I found the piece was super powerful. I kind of like tuned in and tuned out sometimes. But anyway, as I was watching the movie, there's this like 20 something goth kid, like on super high heels, like <laughs> standing and 15 minutes. She didn't like look at the screen the entire time. And that made me really sad, especially cause like, the moments that you described were so moving, like the boats of families that came to, it was the, they landed on the, was it the island of Lesbos? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think it was on Lesbos, um, because it's sort of talking about the history of the Greek island of Simi, and sort of like exploring the kind of uh, historical roots of like messages in a bottle and being sort of caught on a current. And um, just that the kind of like the fragility of people in boats versus these kind of messages that 
are sent often by children, by, I mean, for any number of reasons, but just that equivalency, like how do you balance the Syrian refugee crisis with these other things? And I think she does it very poetically, very beautifully. She does. And I mean, I thought that one thing that I thought was really kind of nice in the movie was that there was a, a passage where they're talking about the bottles um, and how you can throw them in any part of the ocean. They all end up in the same place. And then, of course, you you see the footage of the guy who seems to be the guy, the guy who's collecting all the all the bottles mm-hmm. and like just this idea that your message goes somewhere somehow seemed like like hopeful to me in a, in a way that I was not expecting. And I found that really touching these kind of, because the whole thing is done in this documentary style. So when you encounter these moments where people are talking about things that seem like either synchronistic or mystical in some way, like there's no logic that can explain why somebody puts a a message in the bottle, but somehow it feels like a somehow spiritual act. Those things I thought, those moments I found really beautiful. And they did connect to the other show that we were going to talk about mm-hmm. today, which is the Omer Fast show. Yeah. Which, uh, again, <laughs> uh, this time it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a horror film in 3D and potentially in the world. It's fast right. becoming the subject of some controversy. Do you want to explain you know, <laughs> well, a little bit the, about so- that? Um, the Omer Fast Show is at James Cohen Gallery, which is on the which is in the Grand Street location, and it's up through October 29th. There are three pieces in that gallery. Uh, 1.5 of them are creating problems. So we'll start with the piece that the show is named after, which I think is the least controversial piece. So that piece is called August. It's a 3D video that begins with an old blind man being. Uh, given a line of twine that's used for photographs because this takes place in like 1940s roughly so you use these this this twine to set your camera up in front of your subjects and that would tell you how to focus it so he's given this line of twine by a, a younger version of himself and the house that he lives in is basically like a giant booby trap it's a maze of guidelines made of rope attached to various spots in the apartment and as he navigates the apartment he remembers different things but the the main thing that he remembers is his experience as a younger photographer and a recollection with a German officer who has asked him to take his portrait. And as the German officer is talking about, not the portrait, he starts talking about the death of this, uh, this photographer's son who died as a martyr. And the death was described as an issue of appendicitis. But really, that's just an allegory for his son's views which were sort of Marxist and did not really mm-hmm. align with the, with the Nazis, were um, seen as parasitic and something that could infect the entire country if they were not removed. So he was killed. But through all this, this guy, as a photographer, just treads along and takes photographs that are, as the German officer describes them, as sort of scientific they're not dirtied or soiled by any kind of point of view. They're just these beautiful, flat depictions of people, whoever they are. And he calls this like a kind of tender empiricism, which is 
that's a word for kind of like a silencing, I think, of people. So the whole thing to me seemed like it was a conversation about how artists have a larger responsibility. No, I would agree with that. I, I, I do think, you know, there's he's being lauded by a Nazi officer for his dispassionate gaze for this idea that the yeah, artist can, you know, have a kind of objective uh, perspective or that the camera has that, right? But the, the reason why I call it a horror film is because he's haunted by his lack of action, potentially, you know. Right. And so at the end of the film, I don't want to spoil it, but, you know, you can uh, imagine... W- where a kind of haunting goes. And I think there's also like, the whole movie is just filled with nice allegories. Once you sort of see where the piece is going, like there are lots of shots of him as a young photographer getting ready to take the picture. And what that involves is him putting his head to the viewfinder, but covering himself up in this black draped material. Burying your head in the sand. Yeah, you're just hiding from Mm -hmm. the world. Absolutely. Yeah, and then that, I think, is an interesting um, point because, I mean, here, this this film's presented in 3D. It's beautifully shot. I mean, it's it's stunning to look at. And it's presented in a black box. It's presented in a very sort of neutral space feels very much like a contemporary art space, but that's not how you encounter the show. Do you want to talk about the other one and a half or the other works that we can't put our heads in the sand? You know, it's sort of like... Right. So the thing that is, I guess, unique about this particular show is that Omer Fast has transformed the front of the gallery. So the awning of the gallery, which I think would probably just be some glass doors or like fancy wood or whatever it is, is no longer... Now it is a nondescript Chinese awning. Mm-hmm. And then inside, it's a waiting room for a, a Chinatown bus. So the video, there's a video that you see while you're in the waiting room. And the video, when we look at that, we see footage of coffins. We see various photo shoots with children. There's a Chinese translation that runs underneath while the, while the children and the photographers lip sync what the narrators are saying. And the narrators are a series of men who run funeral services and are embalmers. So they talk about how the practice of embalming is like art. You have to sculpt the lips. You have to, you know, put people back together, literally. You have to make them look like the best versions of themselves before they died. Mm -hmm. And all of this is about helping people transition from one life to another. So to hear these... To hear these accounts, it's, it's really quite moving. All that said, this particular work seems really very much complicated by the appropriation of this Chinese awning and waiting room space, which is a temporary installation, which is not for sale. And that is the thing that is now creating some controversy. Yeah. So maybe you can talk about right. that a well, little as bit. Soon as, as soon as I heard, I heard about the show from a mutual friend named Lynn Sullivan. She's an artist and um, also a bit of an activist herself. And, you know, she alerted me. She had heard that Omer was going to transform the, the facade of James Cohan into like a previous iteration or 
I didn't know exactly what it was going to be transformed into. But as soon as I saw the space and I saw the Chinese awning with its kind of um, generic form, just I you know wasn't even quite sure what it was supposed to be. And even when I went inside the space, um, I wasn't oh, I I couldn't make the connection that this was just like a bus uh, depot or something like an old Chinatown bus station. I I didn't quite know what what it was. Um, but as soon as I heard about this thing, it just, it, it kind of flashed me back to um, this year's spring break, where there was uh, a lot of controversy around a piece called Show Main, where the artists had transformed their exhibition space into a kind of Chinese restaurant that's not selling Chinese food, but it's selling these art objects. And it was meant, I, I don't know what it was meant as, but it certainly brought a lot of criticism and it brought groups that were protesting that piece in the spring break space. What I thought was very different about Omer's piece at first was that I suppose I had hoped that in this kind of like science fiction move that he was doing of kind of like turning back time, that he was going to restore what whatever the space was before it became James Cohan. So that there wouldn't be he wouldn't be locating it in his memory or imagination or centering that move within himself, that he would just be sort of like, this is what was here before. That's a material reality. Normally, it's now just James Cohan Gallery. You know, Omer, in some way, took his memory of this Chinatown bus station, I guess, you know, yep. and created it, but it's not precise to the history of the space. It's a level of fiction and invention that I think the activist community, like the Chinatown Art Brigade and others, are taking issue with, there's so many levels to this, but like one, he's an artist who now lives in Berlin. He's come to New York and he's sort of bringing and creating the space to comment on the passage of time, how gentrification changes communities. And also, you know, like, is he, he's not really taking a position very clearly one way or the other. You know, he sort of said he welcomes the kind of dialogue or the discussion around it. And so he's, I mean, he's essentially been accused of putting yellow face on the building, that this is a kind of cultural appropriation gone awry, and that the local community of activists are deeply upset about this. And it's been sort of covered in hyperallergic. It's, again, it's sort of like when we were talking earlier about LACMA and like Boyle Heights, this is the international global art world colliding with the very local uh, political realities of like Chinatown and the intensity of the gentrification that's happening there. So in, uh, you know, the kind of criticism that's being leveled at Omer, I think you, you know, you can respond to a little bit more. So I think you had some thoughts about how the activists are sort of targeting the work. Well, I guess, you know, one thing to start with is that mm. there does seem to be a separation between the kind of concerns that Omer Fast has and the concerns of the activists who are responding to this. Mm. And they're not entirely aligned, even though I think probably the artist would like them to be more aligned than they are. Omar Fast has a kind of background in dealing with these like transitional spaces. And I think that's I think there is kind of a conceptual argument for the placement of this particular work in in that transitional space because here are all these funeral parlors that are creating transitional spaces like creating creating art and using these transitional spaces to to help people in some way and then this is a transitional space the bus station is kind of it's almost a movie cliche somebody gets on the bus and they're dead and like the the bus takes them to heaven like this sort of thing so you can kind of see that i think that the the narrative though gets really 
kind of dicey if you take it too far and too far is two steps you know it doesn't take that long before you're like well wait a minute like what is he really trying to say about this space that will be broken down it's a transitional space that's like ephemeral like is the is the video about passing from one place to another somehow about like chinatown dying are the you know the residents of this community really going to take that message and and run with it in some way like who is this message for and like who is it serving and when i talked to the gallerist there he said that there was kind of a 50 50 split between people who were definitely like this is terrible and find it really offensive and people are like oh cool you know well that, and, that kind of mirrors my experience of going to see the show itself i just left ellie Ga's show and was walking through down to grand street and i'd passed the gallery once i'd missed it it just didn't register to me as being something so out of place that it looked like art and it wasn't really the the, the sense that what it was you know being a bus stop or something or a waiting room didn't become clear until i was inside the space so i walked by it but as i was walking there there was a, a blonde woman maybe she was from the city maybe she was from the midwest with her two daughters and she just sort of spoke approvingly about how it took 25 years to gentrify the neighborhood and this is somebody who's using it in a positive sense they're saying look at this this neighborhood's now kind of our playground and the the very real social tensions that are kind of building up in the Lower East Side in Chinatown around the housing crisis and the crunch. I mean, this this loops all the way back to what we were talking about with Carolina, that if the activist community realizes that they can shame or push a gallery to close its doors, to leave a neighborhood or to take an art project down, I think that is going to be a message they hear and want to push. But the kind of sad reality is when Omer's show comes down, it goes right back to being James Cohan Gallery, which I'm sort of like, where's the outrage around these galleries all the time? Or is it not really about that? Because I do think with the community in Chinatown, the concern is over housing. It's over displacement. It's over gentrification. And those aren't necessarily cultural questions, right? Whereas this piece, I mean, it starts with you know the accusation that this is um, sort of yellow face, that he's um, condescending outsider, sort of looking down on Chinese culture and Chinese American culture. And so there's two concerns. I mean, there may be some separation between what the critic is upset about and what the community is upset about. Like I sympathize with the activists to a degree that there's like a real gentrification is a problem. But, okay, it's the question of censorship, that there's like a kind of call to like take this piece down potentially, even though you've already mentioned that it's it's a temporary piece, it's going to come down by itself shortly. It is getting caught up in this kind of larger question of who owns culture. You, you sort of raised this point earlier, who can represent places and spaces that we may have all been in at some point, like a Chinese bus station, or if Omer has been, I don't know if that's part of his memory, but it, does he have license? Does he have creative license? moral license to represent a space like that, even if it's uh, using language and representation of a culture that's not technically his own. Well, so here's a question for you. Omer Fast is like primarily a filmmaker. If this bus station existed only as a prop to film something and then the film was what was left over, like how would we feel about him having made that? Nobody would take any issue with it, but this exists in the community for... Yeah, this is a form you know, of public art. You know? Right, so it functions differently. 
I think there's maybe also like less choice that people have in terms of how they interact with it. You know, this is really tricky territory. I mean, it's even hard to talk about because I sympathize with an artist's perspective who wants to show something or take on a subject that Omer's ostensibly like the logic of it sounded sort of right if he had just like reset the clock to what it was instead of kind of introducing a dislocation of place. Well, exactly, because that seems like the reason to do it is a calculation of previous work that he'd made. Mm. And it feels like a market calculation, like this is something that has to fit into my pre-existing body of work, Mm. otherwise doesn't quite work out. I mean, even though the the gallery can't sell it, it all seems like it's part of marketing the artist. Mm But the gallery still chooses to describe this as a kind of backwards gentrification, where it is setting the clock back on gentrification by spending buckets of money to create this mm-hmm. fake storefront for you know for a month. I think the issue that I had with the hyperallergic article was that it seemed like some of the complaints were like, well. There were ATMs that were taped over with makeshift out of order signs and these spaces are depicted as dilapidated and that's not what all spaces look like. So there was like, that was the thing that was offensive. I guess my experience of those spaces was that they often are dilapidated and like, though I don't disagree with the activist position, I think there is plenty of reason to be upset about it. That particular thing is for me the least offensive part of the, the yeah, artwork. I just think he, like, could have, he could have avoided some of that because if he had just created a space that had existed there prior, it would have been a very literal move and the art world may have sort of rejected that kind of literal mindedness, but it wouldn't have opened him up to the kind of charges of using his kind of racial imaginary of what like a bus station looks like and not getting it correct. Yeah, exactly. And so that becomes like an inaccuracy that I think Daniel uh, Wu, the author of this article, really takes issue with and then starts to kind of, you know, unleash pretty fairly a kind of post-colonial critique of this kind of thinking. And again, it speaks to the idea that he's a Berlin-based artist now who's bringing his artwork into the Lower East Side and dropping it into a place that is riven with sort of strife right now uh, along sort of class and racial lines. That's not going away. And I think I would bring up the fact that earlier when uh, we were sort of getting ready for our podcast, Thomas, our excellent sound engineer, who's been <laughs> incredibly patient with us today, sort of raised the question, like, you know, where does this fit in to the kind of string of controversies around artists who are accused of cultural misappropriation, whether it's Sam Durant or, you know, Dana Schutz. And I just felt like it was a different sort of order of magnitude on the sense that it is a temporary piece that is coming down. It's not a public monument like Durant's. And it's not about, you know, the loss of life necessarily of a specific cultural group. Like Durant's piece was a scaffold where Native Americans were executed, right? Or Emmett Till being killed by white men. Um, whereas the fast work is about death and transition, but the, the main struggle right now is over displacement. And so I just, I don't know if it invokes the same kind of level of pain. It doesn't, but I think that that, in a way, that's almost unfortunate because, like, you know, we, we I think we heard this um, in the uh, gentrification panel that we were both on in 2015 at Cabinet where Diana uh, Reina 
talked about how people in her community when they were displaced like that could destroy an entire community Mm, because they rely on their families for Mm. everything and once that chain gets broken they don't have the resources to just pick up and you know make a new life somewhere else where it's cheaper they were living on the line to begin with and that's the that does actually Mm -hmm. result in in deaths although that's the stuff that's invisible Mm -hmm. well there are a lot of connections between these three shows that are not immediately visible but you know you could probably title omer fast show uh, a study of invisible images or something yeah i think that's that's And, and and i guess one of the reasons why i wanted to talk about ellie's show in the middle of these two shows is that i think she handled really difficult subject matter difficult content in a really amazing way that I think a lot of artists often trip over. And I think in this case, um, Omer's tripped over how he's handled gentrification and how he's handled it in the Chinese community, you know, the Chinese American community too. This is, it seems like a misstep. I don't know if it's going to end well. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think it will. And I think it was a needless misstep, like, because I do think that the work independent of that was really quite strong and had a lot to say. And this is going to overshadow everything. I think we're probably just seeing the beginning of this debate. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just hope that it doesn't get as ugly as some of the other ones we've seen. Right. And, you know, I think Trevor is going to be able to live just fine with Jerry's, you know, sort of attempt at a takedown and whatever he's following up with. Whereas I'm not sure Omer, you know, is going to recover in the same way if this turns into a full throated attack on a kind of white art world dropping into neighborhoods and being sort of concerned with more esoteric questions like Omer video is wonderful but I don't know how how it connects to the community well and I mean honestly maybe he shouldn't totally recover I think it does speak to that you know if we were talking about both the sort of moral responsibilities of artists on our podcast and also the ethics of the art world like the kind of how people behave there where you choose to locate your gallery I think is an ethical concern now that dealers really have to start thinking about, you know, like before you decamp to the Bronx, do you really need to consider the kind of art you're bringing, what artists you're bringing? And and should we? I mean, it's not something that I think um, New York galleries haven't been shut down before. You know, William, I I hate to tell you this, but we have like zero hope of gallerists taking those things into consideration when they find a place because they're all just trying to survive too. But now you understand if the activists get a sense that they can shut down or stop a gallery, then they're going to try the same tactics. So it might devolve into name calling, fighting, you know, like going into a gallery, defacing things. I mean, it could get a lot uglier before it gets any better. And with that, I think we should let's uh, wrap up (laughs) close off the podcast. I do want to mention that on Monday, November 6th, when our next podcast will air, we'll have Kenny Schachter talking to us about art fairs. Kenny Schachter is a columnist at Artnet and also a widely respected art dealer, advisor, and whatever other things he's going to call himself. He's kind of a jack of all trades. So. Yeah, and speaking of Kenny Schachter, he, he did make some interesting points about how Trumpian the art world actually is with its comfort uh, with lying and fake news. Uh, so hopefully those are some of the threads we'll pick up with Kenny. Great. Thanks, William. <laughs>